Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Come By Here, America's Presidential Election. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 13th, 2016. This Tuesday, Americans will elect a new president. To say that it's been a chaotic campaign would be an understatement. And some people believe that the chaos suggests that our American political system is broken in some fundamental ways that won't be fixed by a new name in the White House. Back in 2004, the economist Paul Romer quipped that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. In other words, some of our worst experiences provide fertile ground for our best opportunities. Toward that end, I've been contemplating two takeaways from this 2016 presidential election. First, I'm grateful for how forcefully disenfranchised voters have made their aspirations known and demanded to be heard. For they are a demographic in our country that has been forgotten and ignored. You can read about these people in a remarkable new book by J.D. Vance called Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a faith and culture in crisis. J.D. Vance grew up in Middletown, a small town in the southwest corner of Ohio that epitomizes the chronic woes of America's Rust Belt. It's a people and a place that's been losing jobs and losing hope for as long as he can remember. In this hub of misery, he says, you find stray dogs wandering around looking for food. You put your old furniture in the front yard. And for lunch, you eat a fried bologna sandwich with crumbled potato chips on top. This public schools have been taken over by the state. The misery index is measured by divorce, domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse, and unemployment is off the charts. Vance's own mother was married five times, and that does not include the revolving door of father figures that drifted in and out of his life, or, for that matter, her descent into heroin and homelessness. Vance wrote his memoir to explain what it feels like to nearly give up on yourself and why you might do that. His story illustrates how and why his own people what he calls the hillbillies, rednecks, and white trash of greater Appalachia, are characterized by cultural isolation, disconnection from our most important institutions, anger, resentment, blame, and, most important of all, feelings of futility and a lack of agency. In other words, that their choices don't matter. Studies have shown that they are the single most pessimistic group in America. It would be nice if all these people needed was more money, a good job, a better economy, or more robust public policies. But the problems run broader and deeper. For Vance says, it's about a culture that increasingly encourages social decay instead of counteracting it. And so, he says, our elegy is a sociological one, yes, but also about psychology and community and culture and faith. In a vicious circle, poverty causes social decay. 
and the social decay worsens the poverty. Vance is one of the lucky few who made it out alive all the way to Yale Law School. Today he lives in San Francisco and works as an investment banker. He never pities, excuses, or condescends to his own people. No, he's proud of his heritage. Nor does he romanticize their plight. He's brutally honest, and many of his stories are painful to read and even hard to believe. Vance calls himself a modern conservative without explaining just what that means. He appeals to personal responsibility more than to any government policy, which at best can only be a thumb on the scale. At the end of the day, he administers what one reviewer calls a heavy dose of very tough love to his own people. Oddly enough, the conservative Vance reminded me of the liberal Daniel Berrigan. Berrigan, the Jesuit priest and peace activist, spent time in prison for his civil disobedience against government policies on racism, nuclear arms, and, most famously, the Vietnam War. His so-called credo is a refreshing reminder for our election day. Daniel Berrigan's credo. I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. I like to update Berrigan's repudiation of false hopes and misplaced trust. I cannot be saved by Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. I cannot be saved by the ACLU, the new Supreme Court, or the Koch brothers. No, my salvation rests in God alone. But this does not mean that we repudiate politics as unimportant. Far from it. True believers have an unconditional allegiance to render to God what is God's, but we still have an obligation to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So, secondly, this election has also made me want to honor the complexity and necessity of politics itself, and all the politicians, activists, and donors who work to make our country a more perfect union. And conversely, I want to repudiate what Jonathan Rauch calls the general public's reflexive, unreasoning hostility to politicians and the process of politics. Neurotic hatred of the political class is the country's last universally acceptable form of bigotry. And in another little ironic twist, Rauch's article in The Atlantic by the atheist Rauch reminded me of a poem by the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. It's called The Noise of Politics, and it expresses this ambiguity and necessity of politics and the mix of my own hopes, fears, 
and faith. Listen to Walter Brueggemann, The Noise of Politics. We watch as the jets fly in with the power people and the money people, the suits, the budgets, the billions. We wonder about monetary policy because we are among the haves, and about generosity because we care about the have-nots. By slower modes, we notice Lazarus and the poor arriving from Africa, and the beggars from Central Europe, and the throng of environmentalists with their vision of butterflies and oil, of flowers and tanks, of growing things and killing fields. We wonder about peace and war, about ecology and development, about hope and entitlement. We listen beyond jeering protesters and soaring jets, and faintly we hear the mumbling of the crucified one. Something about feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty, about clothing the naked and noticing the prisoners, more about the least and about holiness among them. We are moved by the mumbles of the gospel, even while we are tenured in our privilege. We are half ready to join the choir of hope, half afraid things might change, and in a third half of our faith, turning to you and your outpouring love that works justice and that binds us each and all to one another. So we pray amidst jeering protesters and soaring jets, come by here and make new, even at some risk, to our entitlements. Yes, there's a lot of noise in our American political system, but this Tuesday I will be praying with Walter Brueggemann for God to come by here and make new and bind us each and all to one another. For books this week, I review a title called Half Truths, God Helps Those Who Help Themselves, and Other Things the Bible Does Not Say. The author is Adam Hamilton, Nashville, Abington, 2016. This book is 174 pages long. Does God help those who help themselves? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? Well, even though that's a common piece of cultural advice, the answer on both counts is no. Adam Hamilton calls this half-truth. No one would discount the importance of prudence or hard work, but in fact, the Bible teaches something almost the opposite of this cliché. In other words, God gives us what we don't deserve. He helps the helpless. I think of such aphorisms as junk food theology. Something that tastes good is cheap and nonetheless bad for you. In this little book, Adam Hamilton considers five such half-truths, like everything happens for a reason, or God won't give you more than you can handle, or love the sinner, hate the sin. Such statements aren't entirely untrue, says Hamilton, but they simplify otherwise complex issues that require more nuance and the careful interplay of scripture, 
tradition, reason, and experience. The so-called quadrilateral of Hamilton's United Methodist heritage. One of the strengths of this book is how Hamilton draws upon his 30 years of pastoral experiences, weddings, funerals, hospital visits, notes from parishioners, and weekly preaching. Like many of his books, this one, this one first took shape as sermons. He prays, he reads his Bible, and he also carefully considers what the Spirit is saying among the people of God. These five half-truths cause a lot of unnecessary pain and confusion. And so, as a good pastor, Hamilton ever so gently debunks them. And it's easy to think of many more half-truths beyond the five that he considers. In 1990, Adam Hamilton founded the Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, with four people. Today, the church is the largest United Methodist Church in the country, with 18,000 members. Along the way, Hamilton has written two dozen books, all of which, in their various ways, urge what he has elsewhere called a radical center that moves beyond the tired debates between evangelical conservatives and mainline liberals. He wants to find a center point between what he calls minimalist liberalism and maximalist conservatism. Elsewhere, Hamilton has advanced the language of liberal evangelical, or maybe evangelical liberal. His careful thinking and down-to-earth style make all his books worth reading. For more on his ministry and his books, see adamhamilton.org. Once again, Adam Hamilton, the title of the book, Half Truths, God Helps Those Who Help Themselves, and Other Things the Bible Doesn't Say. For movies this week, I review Flight of the Butterflies. When Fred Urquhart, 1911 to 2002, was a little boy in Toronto, he was fascinated by a crazy question. Where did all those beautiful black and orange monarch butterflies go every fall when it got cold? Urquhart would go on to become a zoologist who, along with his wife Nora, and thousands of volunteer citizen scientists, is credited with documenting one of the most fascinating discoveries in natural history in one of the longest migrations on Earth. This 44-minute film follows two lives, really, those of Urquhart and the butterflies. From a tiny egg to a very hungry black and yellow caterpillar to a chrysalis for two weeks and then to an adult butterfly, the monarchs begin their winter habitation in central Mexico. It then takes about three generations of monarchs, 500 million strong, about six months to fly through the United States and on to Canada where they breed. Then a single so-called super generation that lives eight times longer than its predecessors 
makes the return trip of 2,500 miles back to Mexico. If you are searching for a fun and family-friendly movie, look no further. This film was underwritten by the National Science Foundation and originally made for 3D IMAX. I watched it on Netflix streaming. Once again, the name of the movie, Flight of the Butterflies. And for poetry this week, more poetry by Denise Levertov. This poem is called Flickering Mind. Lord, not you. It is I who am absent. At first, belief was a joy I kept in secret, stealing alone into sacred places, a quick glance and away, and back circling. I have long since uttered your name, but now I elude your presence. I stop to think about you, and my mind at once like a minnow darts away, darts into the shadows, into gleams that fret unceasing over the rivers purling and passing. Not for one second will myself hold still, but wanders anywhere everywhere it can turn. Not you, it is I who am absent. You are the stream, the fish, the light, the pulsing shadow. You, the unchanging presence in whom all moves and changes. How can I focus my flickering, perceive at the fountain's heart the sapphire I know is there? Flickering Mind by Denise Levertoff. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 13th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.